we didn't realize that all the gas stations closed at like 9 o'clock. When we were driving on the ice, it like caved in and we went down. He said, I'm going to get you back for this. They both got out and were flying around. It's time for The Apple Seat, a show filled with all kinds of stories for you and your family. Tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal and family tales, and more. Here at The Apple Seat, we believe in the power of great stories. Stories can show us a way forward we hadn't imagined before. And we hope that the stories this hour give you a sense of that hope for the future. I'm your host, Sam Payne. And our first story this hour is from Ohio storyteller Kim White Camp. She brings us a story about being recognized. A lot of people use the phrase being seen. Perhaps you've had the experience of feeling like people don't understand you very well. Maybe even that you don't understand yourself very well because of the response you get from the adults and other people around you. There's a young woman named Caroline Herschel in Germany in the late 1700s. She had that experience. Her parents made her what she would later call the Cinderella of the family. She was in charge of cooking and cleaning and taking care of the household. And in 1772, her brother, William, whisked her away to England, where she learned about astronomy with him, an advanced technical world of telescopes and math and physics of long nights under the stars and afternoons drawing up the observations from the night before, writing up the data. William, the brother, recognized her talents and gave her a way to use them. And then, what do you know, at least in part because of her brother's belief in her, he is seeing her, Caroline turned into a kind of astronomy superstar. She began discovering what scientists call deep sky objects, nebulae and star clusters. She was the first woman to discover a comet and get this, the first woman to be paid for her scientific work. Caroline and her brother, William, together compiled a list of 2,500 stars and nebulae that even today Amateur astronomers work their way through as a way to challenge themselves and hone their telescope skills. It all came from being seen. Sometimes we just need someone to recognize what's inside of us, our humor or our drive or our thoughtfulness before we can start down the path to who we become. And in this story from Kim Whitecamp, we hear about who everyone thought Kim was. If Kimmy would entertain her work as much as she tries to entertain the class. I thought I was doing a good job. Apparently, she did not. (laughs) Kim Whitecamp talking about how people tended to see her before an important teacher saw who Kim really was. And that really changed Kim We're going to hear the story. And then later in the hour, we've got kind of a whiz-bang adaptation of Peter Pan, the classic story about a boy who won't grow up and his adventures with the darling children in Neverland. Put up your swords, boys. This man is mine. So, Pan, this is your doing. (laughs) Aye, Hook. It is my doing. Proud and insolent youth. Prepare to meet thy doom! Dark and sinister man of Athy! Sword play and more. We assembled some actors and an audience and read some fun scenes from that classic piece of literature that's coming up. If you recognize one of those voices, boy, did I ever have fun playing Captain Hook. All that today on The Appleseed. Let's dive in with that Kim Whitecamp story now, shall we? It's called Mrs. Ort, and uh, we're happy to bring it to you on The Appleseed. (laughs) Thank you. Well, when I was a little girl, my report cards came in butterscotch-colored envelopes. The report cards themselves were Easter egg green and blue and yellow. I loved to get my report card. Not for the grades. Kids know what their grades are before they ever see the report card. That part's for the parent. I like to get mine because of the comments. Now, when I was in elementary school, 
Our report cards were not computer generated with numbers denoting which uh, comment you should look at, like number 13, 14, and 22, that's your kid. How can you have 35 comments for 400 beautiful, unique children? No. Back in the day, before that technology, our report cards had handwritten comments by the teachers, and I loved it. From kindergarten through fourth grade, all of my report cards had the same theme. If Kimmy wouldn't talk so much. <laughs> Mrs. Wyrick, my third grade teacher, gave me my first review, and I did not like it. She said, if Kimmy would entertain her work as much as she tries to entertain the class. I thought I was doing a good job. Apparently, she did not. <laughs> if Kimmy would apply herself. If Kimmy would stay seated. Your daughter interrupts. Your daughter's always bouncing off the walls. They didn't say that, but I've heard that in uh, teacher conferences when I sat in the hallway. <laughs> and it was that way. And it was hard. I would get off the bus at, uh, on report card day. And I would go in the house and I'd get at the end of the line of children because I wanted to be the last one to see my mom. All of my siblings were somewhat overachievers, but me. I overachieved in other areas. <laughs> And whenever it was my turn to show my mom the report card, she would begin to shake her head and cluck her tongue, and she'd go, oh, Kimmy, just hand it here. I'd hand it to her, and she'd open it up and look at the grades. Hmm. She'd read the back, and every report card, every semester, she'd write the same thing. We've tried everything. <laughs> it was that way until fifth grade when I found Mrs. Ort, or rather, she found me. Mrs. Ort was a ramrod straight woman. Sensible skirt, rubber-soled bottom shoes, button-down shirts starched with lines down the sleeves, a sharp edge with the iron. Her hair piled high, shellacked with aquanet. Her lips, painted coral number 62, set firm in determination to set us adrift on the sea of life, she the wind in our sails. Well, I was so excited to get her because all of my brothers that went before me, I was the first girl to get her, said that she was the coolest teacher ever. And I was so stoked. I remember the day that they announced who got what teacher. And my mom put us all in the Oldsmobile station wagon. We drove up to the Locust Grove Elementary School. All the doors were open, airing out fresh paint. And we, my mom dropped us off at the entrance. And we all ran down through the hallway on that freshly polished linoleum floor to the bathrooms. Because right beside the bathrooms is where they posted all the pages. And I went and I found fifth grade and then I found the teachers and I started looking for my name and there it was. I got Mrs. Ort as my teacher. I was so stoked to see what made her cool because she did not appear cool in the hallway. <laughs> well, school started and the very first day she took roll call and then shut the door and then went over and lifted the top off of a glass terrarium and pulled out a rabbit. And she said, I'm going to let the rabbit run around during class. If you keep your pockets on your seat and the rabbit goes by, you can pet it, but you don't let your pockets leave your seat. So the whole class, this rabbit's hopping around. And you'd be thinking, just come to me. Just come to me. And if you got to pet it, you just were so excited. And then in the middle of class, out of nowhere, she'd go, children, look. Look at the rabbit. Eat a pellet, make a pellet. Eat a pellet, make a pellet. That's how it's done. That's what I thought. I was like, wow, eat a pellet, make some poop. It's fascinating. She was teaching us science right there in the, in, in, the, in the room. And I thought she is the coolest teacher ever. I loved her because I can never remember that woman raising her voice ever. And yet we listened. Other teachers would leave the room and say, work on your work. On your, work, on your work. I'll be back in a minute. And bedlam would ensue. Nobody worked on anything. But when Mrs. Ort left the room, we were quiet diligent, working hard to get done as much as possible. So when she'd come back, we could show her what we did because we wanted her to be proud of us. And if one of us acted up, she would gently call us to the front and she'd go, come here, sugar. And then she would look out towards the classroom and sit in a chair 
and put you in front of her so that they could not see your peers, your quivering lip, and the tear going down your face as she explained to you why you were getting in trouble. And she did it in a very calm voice, and you either were sent back to your seat or sent to the office. No one wanted to upset her. Unlike Mrs. Seiler, who ran the library and could not stand me. The library is a place of quiet. Kimmy is never quiet was one of the things on the back of my report cards. I would walk through the library doors so excited. I'm a prolific reader to this day. And I'd walk through the library doors and I could see through the plexiglass window. I wouldn't look directly. I would use my peripheral vision because she scared me. I would see Mrs. Seiler behind her desk. And the minute I walked in, I could see her rise up out of that chair she sat on. And when she'd rise up, I could hear that chair sigh and relief as she lifted her body. She would grab a yardstick, not a ruler, and she would stand and watch me as I made my way around the library. And then I would get involved in something, and I'd get so excited I forgot that she was watching. Like I, one time I remember I found Charlotte's Web, and when I went to the back to see who had taken the book out, Rick Armstrong had written his name there. And I ran out to a table and I was like, Louise, Julie, you're not gonna believe this. Guess who had this book probably in his bedroom? I said, Rick Armstrong had this in his house. And they're like, oh, this is so exciting. And as I was telling them this and we were getting super excited that we had a book that Rick Armstrong had had in his house, flap came that yardstick on the table and I was banned from the library for seven days for causing a ruckus, she said. <laughs> I've forgiven her because I realize that she was just angry she couldn't retire. <laughs> and she had to take it out on somebody. But whenever you got hauled out of the library by Mrs. Seiler, kids would kind of give you a silent, yeah, stick it to the man, right? <laughs> but not in Mrs. Ort's class. In Mrs. Ort's class, if you got in trouble, they'd look at you with a look like, what are you doing? We love this one. Well, I was in her class about three and a half weeks when she stopped teaching. And I think I was talking to Melissa Cunningham to my right about her new Wonder Woman lunchbox because that's exciting, right? And she said, Kimberly, stand up. Every head turned and looked at me. I slid out of my little wooden desk, played with the bottom of my Snoopy t-shirt and thought, what did I do that she found out about? She said, you, child, you have a gift. It is the gift of gab, and with it, you could rule the world. <laughs> and I thought to myself, finally, somebody gets it. I was so excited. I had received pink slips my whole kindergarten through fourth grade for talking too much, disrupting, go to the office, and here's a teacher telling me that it's a gift. Well, when the report cards came out in that class, I was so excited. When she called my name, I ran up and I received it from her with reverence. I ran back to my desk, took it out. I did not look at the grades. I flipped it over immediately. And there on the back, she had written, Kimberly is a pure delight. What? <laughs> I was so excited. I stuck it in my backpack. I was off the bus before it even slowed to a complete stop. I ran in the house and I said, mom, mom, look at my report card. And she said, Kimmy, let's wait. Let me look at Chris's first. He's a psychologist now. <sighs> she said, let me look at Chris's first. I'm like, no, mom, really, you really want to see my report card. I promise you do. Just look at it. She took it, slid it out. She looked at the grades. Hmm. Looked at the back. Gave me a side glance flipped it over and checked the name on the front. <laughs> then she walked over to the kitchen bar and then she wrote something, slipped it back into that butterscotch colored envelope, gave it to me and said, you put this in your backpack. You do not read what I wrote. You hand it to her tomorrow morning and tell her I'm calling her at lunch. Yes, ma'am. Well, the next day I got on the bus and I found an empty green and vinyl seat. I slid to the window, turned, unzipped my backpack, and you know what I did. <laughs> Secretly, you want me to do it. I pulled it out, slipped out the report card, turned it over, and there on the back, my mother had written, what are you drinking? <laughs> well, my mom and Mrs. Ort did talk that day at lunch. And my mom, even to this day, tells me about the conversations they had.
Mrs. Ort said things like, Kimmy has gifts that cannot be tested within these four walls because they expand far beyond that. If we don't find a place for her to go while she's in school conforming to what she has to learn, we're going to lose her. And from that day on, they worked hard to find things for me to do. For instance, not only theater, they got me into theater, not only playing the tonette, which did give me an outlet, but clapping every eraser she could possibly give me to get me out of her classroom. Well, I stayed in touch with Mrs. Ort. I had a morning radio show. I had her on every teacher appreciation day. When I went back home to see my mom, I popped by Mrs. Ort's house. And then she passed away. And I remember at the funeral, her son said to me, I have something for you. I said, okay. And he took me into the bedroom where all the coats were piled high. And he reached beside the bed and put a cardboard box up on the bed. And on the side was my name, my name, my maiden name when I was in her class. And he took off the lid and he said, my mom saved this. And I said, what? And I went over and looked inside and there were all the love letters I wrote her about how she was the greatest teacher in the world and that I just loved her so much. And there were brooches with rusty back pins, <laughs> half the rhinestones missing that I bequeathed to her. There was an essay I wrote about what I wanted to be when I grew up and she had framed it and kept it on her house wall for a while. And I'd written that I wanted to be Billy Graham. <laughs> My mom's still disappointed. And I looked at her and her son and I said, you know what? I am her favorite. I thought I was. I really did. I thought I was her favorite student and now I know. And he said, yeah, you're her favorite. Come with me. And he took me in the basement and flicked on a light. And there against that cinder block wall were stacks and stacks and stacks of cardboard boxes. Some names I recognized from school, some I didn't. And he said, every one of them was her favorite, all of you. You know, sometimes you don't understand the value of a moment until it becomes a memory. And in hindsight, those glasses gifted to us by life, not so we can beat ourselves over the head with what could have, should have, would have been, but to give us clearer understanding with a vibrancy of colors to move forward in a better, more solid direction. In hindsight... I would do things different. Fifth grade is hard. You don't know whether to run with the wind, wipe snot on your sleeve and play and never brush your hair till those are not in the back. That was my MO. Or fifth grade, do I brush my hair, put on some Bonnie Bell lipstick and act like I have it all together? Fifth grade is tough. That's why it's called tweenagers. And if I would have threw my arms around that woman and thanked her, it would have been socially destructive. <laughs> And I would have been made fun of. But now I know the value of a moment. And in hindsight, I would do things different. I get at the end of the line of kids going out the double metal doors to recess. And as they all exited, I would go back into the classroom. And as she sat at her desk and turned to ask me, Kimberly, what is it you want? I would jump in her lap, throw my arms around her and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for teaching me that I do not have to fit in anybody's box. Kim Whitecamp recorded live in the Appleseed studio with a story called Mrs. Ort about the gratitude we have for someone who recognizes something great in us, someone who really sees us. Maybe there's someone like that in your life. Maybe the person who sees who you are is a parent or a neighbor or a teacher or a church leader, maybe the parent of a friend. And you too can start to be the person to recognize the good and the unique in the people around you. You can see them. You don't have to lavish people with praise. Often you just need to say something small that will help other people along their way, help other people know that someone's looking, someone sees them. In just a moment, we'll bring in our producers, Brian and Heather, for a little talk back about that story from Kim Whitecamp, followed by the story of Peter Pan and Captain Hook. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. A 
moment ago, it was our pleasure to hear from the wonderful Ohio storyteller Kim Whitecamp, recorded live in the Appleseed studio, telling a story called Mrs. Ort about an important teacher, a teacher who saw what was really there in the young Kim Whitecamp and made a change. And to talk about that story, I'm joined around the desk by Dr. Heather Bigley, Dr. Brian Tanner, our producers. Guys, thanks for joining me. Hello. Hey, it's good to be here. I I see you both. (laughs) (laughs) And we feel seen by you. I feel seen. Thank you. (laughs) Where does a story like this tell you? You A a moment ago, we we mentioned that if you were listening to that story, a, a person may have come to mind, someone who really saw you, someone who gave you the impression that that you were noticed and recognized and understood by them. Did that happen for you? Is there, is there a person who I mean, came to mind? Can I talk about a time when I behaved poorly? Let's talk about that. Um, <laughs> and somebody said, I see you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> boy, do we see you now. Yeah, that's exactly the yeah. story. Like Mrs. Early, fifth grade, who I don't know— I don't remember being this student before I walked into her class. There was something about her where I just needed to make every joke. I needed to get up out of my seat. I need—I don't know what it was. And we had parent conferences where it was like, what is going on with this kid? Uh, and I was rude. Like, the jokes would be personal jokes about her, you know, which just wow. now as a teacher, I'm like, I would have lost it. On a kid, if I'd had someone like this. Um, and she was the teacher who had writing workshop where she actually taught us the writing process and we got to write stories. And I loved her class. Like, yeah. I don't know what was going on with me. Um, and I can remember years later, I mean, not like I was an adult, but like in middle school, my sister and I riding our bikes around various neighborhoods and we saw Mrs. Early. And I remember feeling so glad and happy, and she was so sweet that here I was in her yard, this little monster, right? (laughs) And she didn't say, get out and have the dogs chase me down the drive. She was like, oh, how are you? And she treated me really, really gracefully. And um, I don't know what it was. I don't know what happened. I'm still thinking about it, as you can see. Sure, sure. Uh, it should be said, uh, Heather hasn't always been a crack radio producer <laughs> in a former life, even a recent former life. She was a teacher. There's a, there's a, a kind of poetic yes. justice in that, I yeah. imagine, right? Yeah. yeah. How about you, Brian? Well, just picking up on what Heather was talking about, in the story, uh, Kim Whitecamp, it, it is fifth grade, is it not? Yeah. You yeah, know, I think Which so. is the age that you were talking about, and she, she gives some grace to fifth graders, you know, saying this is a difficult time. You are a— they came up with a word for it, tween or teenager, <laughs> right. because it is this difficult time of transition. And so this uh, this experience you had with your teacher giving you some kind of grace and and being kind to you, it, it feels like the exact same thing that that Mrs. Ort was doing for her own students, just recognizing mm. you're going through something right now. These are times when you're to some extent, leaving childhood and moving into adolescence, and it can be confusing, and you can be working things out, and there are changes happening in your body, and you know, and, and I need to get, give people space for that. And as I was listening to this, I was just like, wow, you know, Kim is telling a story from a different era, you know, when sure. she was in school, yeah. and this just sounds like a teacher ahead of her time because mm. this feels like the the way that a teacher needs to approach students in, in in modern times now is that students are coming into the classroom and they may be like neurodivergent they may have trauma at home they're bringing all kinds of things into the classroom and i feel like there's a much better recognition of that now than there might have been in previous generations yeah. back then it was just like why are you acting out Ugh, let's throw our hands up what do we even do <laughs> you know when there might be a more uh, approach that's more informed by trauma or or uh, like I said, neurodivergence or something yeah. like that. And so th- this is a great example of someone who was taking this approach before that became common. Yeah. And of course, the irony is, is as a teacher, I often had to discipline kids in my classroom. And I remember a bunch of squirrely seventh graders mm-hmm. where I would be like, you go stand outside and wait for me. Which is a great practice, right? You know, then they, like, start to sweat. Um, they get really upset. I come outside. I close the door. I look at them, and I say, you know what I like about you? And I started with 
what I thought was great about the kid, which then resulted in another, I mean, talk about all the great teacher points. They just started to sob, right? Uh-huh. They would just cry and cry and cry. And then you could say, here's what you need to be doing better uh-huh. in my classroom. And they're just all soft and mushy. <laughs> yeah. um, and we'll it, do better, Dr. Do better. Yeah, exactly. Um, good. I mean, they didn't. But, I mean, we had, like, this moment where they knew I saw them. Yeah. And they also knew they weren't performing the way they needed to perform. Yeah. Right? Um, Those kids come back after the school year was over as they moved on in their lives? Would they come back and visit? I've had a, a number of kids come back and visit and say, you know— you were the you were the teacher who expected the most, and yeah. um, I actually am really grateful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah. was never the pal. I was never, you know, the friendly teacher. I was the one who was. But I tried to say, I saw you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Well, and think what those kids were expecting when they pulled them. You oh. pulled them out <laughs> into the hallway. You right. know, I don't think they were expecting you know compliments and praise to come first. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> Rhetorical trickery. That's what's all up here, you guys. Uh, and Heather, you're our pal. <laughs> yeah, just to let you know. Well, I hope so because I've said some sharp things. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, something else I responded to in this story was, you know, this feeling that Mrs. Ort was able to give to Kim and to all of the students. Like, you are my favorite student, mm-hmm. you know. And I th- I think that's so difficult for a teacher to pull off, but I can think of one, Miss Schneider, you know, in mm. in 10th grade. I, I remember that um, she actually gave me special assignments that no one else was getting in the class. And she assigned me different books and stuff like that. And I don't know what it was that she saw where she was just like, he has different needs than everybody else in the class. Mm. And I was just kind of, I felt cool. I'm like, oh, I get to read this other book that nobody else is reading. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I think back and I'm like, that was a lot of work for her to assign something different and, right. and give me tests on it and have yeah. me write papers on it. And I don't think I appreciated that in the moment, but oh. it was only in the aftermath where I was like, wow, she she did this. And it was years and years later, and I wrote her a letter mm. when it just dawned on me. And I was just like, thank you so much for, for doing that and for, and for seeing I had different needs for whatever reason you were perceiving yeah. that made me feel really special, made me feel seen. Yeah. You know, she wrote me back this really beautiful letter, and it was shortly before she died. And I was glad, like, yeah. before she went out of this world, I was able to express the gratitude that I had for her. And what a gift for her, from you, to let her know that she was seen. Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. Uh, in your thanks. Yeah. Uh, you got to tell her, your 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 efforts, on my behalf, didn't go unnoticed. Te- teachers need that, right? Yeah. They do need that. And, I hope- and pay raises. <laughs> <laughs> Strong unions. <laughs> Administrative support. Yes. Yeah, we can have a whole list. But I hope that she, when she got my letter from one person that she realized for every letter that you get, you know, there are probably, you know, countless other students who came through the class who felt the same way and could be moved to write such a letter as well. Yeah. Well, of course, the story of Mrs. Ort uh, brought back a memory for me that I'd like to share as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. You hear a lot of stuff over the pulpit in church. You hear instruction and doctrine and tips for improvement and more. And so we in the pews may have thought that's the kind of thing we were going to get when the guy in my neighborhood stepped to the microphone and cleared his throat. But on this occasion... We didn't get instruction or doctrine or tips for improvement at all. He just wanted to thank the people in the neighborhood. And here's how the story unfolded. The child of my neighbor had been blue on a day that week, melancholy, feeling alone in the world. Ever felt that way? I've felt that way. Even when it's not true, even when I'm not alone in the world, I've sometimes felt that way. Those thoughts are sometimes unconnected with the way the world really is, but the thoughts are real for sure. Anyone who's ever had them can attest to that. I can attest to that. In any case, my neighbor did what you'd do. 
he sat down with his child to talk it through. And his question to his child was this. Can you think of the names of some people who love you? And to be honest, he thought that was going to be the tricky part of the conversation. He thought his child was in a place like that place you get sometimes, that place where it might be tough to name any of the people who love you. That's the conversation my neighbor was gearing up for with his child, the conversation in which he was going to have to help supply that list, that list of people who loved his child. But something else happened instead. The child started right in on a list, and it wound up being a long list. And my neighbor chuckled about it when he talked about it over the pulpit. He said that the list didn't even include aunts and uncles and cousins and siblings. The list was mostly neighbors. Name after name came out of that kid's mouth, and they were, a lot of them, folks from the neighborhood, old folks, young folks, all of whom had somehow done something, demonstrated some kind of interest in or support of that kid, some kind of interest or support that got them on that list, that list that in the end, the kid could turn to in a moment of melancholy, of self-doubt, of loneliness. The dad, my neighbor, was at the pulpit telling us how thankful he was for that. And we all left that church meeting feeling thankful too, thankful to live in a neighborhood full of people who saw each other, full of people that one might think of when asked to make a list of where the love is coming from. Chances are, that there's a list like that in your mind, in your heart. A list of people who see you, who support and love you. When things are easy, it might be easy to think of some of those names. And on other days, when you feel dark and alone, it might be tougher. I get that. But think of them now, if you can. Do they know they're on the list? Maybe that's something you could share with them, along with a story of why they're on the list. That story might be sweet to tell and sweet for them to hear as well. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. It's been a pleasure for me to talk about Kim Whitecamp's story, Mrs. Ort, with Dr. Heather Bigley and Dr. Brian Tanner, our producers. Guys, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And thank you for seeing us. (laughs) (laughs) Lots more coming up on The Appleseed. Peter Pan, I'm Sam Payne. Our first story this hour was about a teacher truly seeing a child and recognizing the special gifts of that student. And our next story is about two people who want to be seen in specific ways by the people around them. Peter Pan and Captain Hook are the protagonist and the antagonist of the 1904 play Peter Pan. Two characters opposed not only in purpose and character, but in how they think of themselves. In this piece, listen for how Peter wants Wendy to think of him as a charming boy, a motherless son, and frankly, how she obliges. And listen for how Captain Hook wants respect of the highest kind, how he wants to be seen as having good form, a phrase the British use to mean socially acceptable, and even more than that, admirable. So without further ado, here's Peter Pan, adapted by our producer, Heather Bigley, performed in front of our fantastic studio audience by Ben Butters as Peter Pan, Justine Kitteringham as Wendy, Anthony Buck as John and Michael and Toodles, and me, Sam Payne, as Captain Hook. For a brief moment, I was a pirate. I was called Starkey, and I spoke with a brogue and sang sea shanties and occasionally ran in fear from a large crocodile who had swallowed a clock. 
You see, as an eighth grader, I was cast in the Northern Middle School interpretation of Peter Pan. My friends Ferris, Andreas, and Jenny were all pirates together, and we reveled in it. We were friends with the other actors in the play. My sister played Mrs. Darling. But when you're given a skulking crew as a 14-year-old, you often embrace it with glee, which we did. Even though I was familiar with the play, I was surprised years later when I read through J.M. Barrie's novelization of Peter Pan. The narrator is sharp and critical about Pan and Hook and Wendy and Mr. Darling, about children and parents. What I thought of as a whimsical, funny little play for kids actually came out of an acerbic, cynical mind. Off we skip like the most heartless things in the world, which is what children are, but so attractive, and we have an entirely selfish time. And then when we have need of special attention, we nobly return for it, confident that we shall be embraced instead of smacked. Perhaps you've seen one of the many versions of Peter Pan. The original British stage play premiered in 1904, but the Disney animated film from 1953 and the American stage musical with the famous I Won't Grow Up musical number from 1954 are the most famous. When people grow up, they forget how to fly because they are no longer gay and innocent and heartless. It is only the gay and innocent and heartless who can fly. The original play was once titled Peter Pan or The Boy Who Hated Mothers. (laughs) This is perhaps the most unnatural thing about Peter, more unnatural than his unwillingness to grow up, or the fact that he still has his baby teeth, or that he is incredibly forgetful and stunningly conceited. It is humiliating to have to confess that this conceit of Peter was one of his most fascinating qualities— To put it with brutal frankness, there never was a cockier boy. And yet, even though Peter hated mothers, he knew very well that mothers were the source of bedtime stories. This is why Peter was gawking about the nursery window and playing about in Wendy's dreams in the first place. You see, I don't know any stories. None of the lost boys know any stories. How perfectly awful! Do you know why swallows build in eaves of houses? It is to listen to the stories. Oh, Wendy, your mother was telling you such a lovely story about the prince who couldn't find the lady who wore the glass slipper. That was Cinderella. And he found her. And they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) I must go tell the other boys. Don't go, Peter. I know such lots of stories. Oh, the stories I could tell the boys. Wendy... Do come with me and tell the other boys. But I couldn't. What would Mummy say? I'll teach you to fly. Fly? And you'll see mermaids. Mermaids? We would respect you awfully much, Wendy. You could tuck us in at night. Oh! Wendy loved playing with dolls, and the idea of being a mother to a dozen little boys filled her with a greedy distress. (laughs) John! Michael, wake up! Peter Pan is going to teach us to fly! Wake up! And so, with a little instruction... Think lovely thoughts and they will lift you up into the air! And some fairy dust... Heavenly! The darling children learned to fly and soared out the nursery window to Neverland. Michael speeding ahead of Wendy in her billowing white nightgown, and John with his father's discarded top hat, with nary a thought about their parents' broken hearts. We flew for weeks and weeks, it seemed, but finally we saw it. Or it saw us and revealed itself. There it is! And we recognized it, for it was the Neverland of our own dreams, with astonishing splashes of color here and there, and coral reefs and rakish-looking craft in the offspring, and lonely lairs, and gnomes who are mostly tailors, and caves through which a river runs. And princes with six elder brothers, and a hut fast going to decay, and one very small old lady with a hooked nose. There is also first day at school, religion, fathers, the round pond, needlework, murders, hang Verbs that take the dative, chocolate pudding day, getting into braces, say 99, three pence for pulling out your tooth yourself, and so on. Neverland is snug and compact, not large and sprawly with tedious distance between one adventure and another, but nicely crammed. Look, you can see the lost boys. Where? There, north side. They're looking for me. 
And who's that behind them? Tiger Lily's tribe. How silently they track the lost boys. Tiger Lily? Is she pretty? And behind them are the pirates. John, should you like to have an adventure? We could capture James Hook. James Hook? He was Blackbeard's bosun. He is the worst of them all. He was the only man of whom Barbecue was afraid. He wears an iron claw where I cut off his hand and fed it to a crocodile. But there's the crocodile. Can you hear him? He swallowed a clock and it goes on ticking inside him. Yes, I hear it. How does the clock stay wound? The croc is after Hook, you see. And Hook always escapes because he hears the tick and then bolts. But promise, John, if we meet Hook in open fight, you must leave him to me. I promise. For this story, the story of Peter Pan, is about the eventual duel between Pan and Hook, the boy who won't grow up versus the man who is haunted by his lost youth. For if Peter hated mothers, he didn't have a very good opinion of fathers either. And we'll get to that very shortly. But why is Wendy here? I see now. Peter was bringing her to us, a lady to take care of us at last, and I have killed her. As they try to land on the mystical island, the darling children are separated from Pan. Tinkerbell has charge of Wendy, and she tells the lost boys she has brought them a great bird that Peter wants them to kill. The boys, eager to please Peter, shoot their arrows at Wendy, and she falls to their feet. Toodles is the one whose arrow struck true. When ladies used to come to me in dreams, I said, Pretty mother, pretty mother. But when at last she really came, I shot her. (laughs) I have brought you a mother to tell you stories. Why do you not cheer? Peter, I will show you to her. She is dead. He thought of hopping off in a comic sort of way till he was out of sight of her and then never going near the spot anymore. They would have all been glad to follow if he had done this. But there was the arrow. He took it from her heart and faced his band. Whose arrow? Mine. Dastard hand! Peter raised the arrow to use it as a dagger. Toodles did not flinch. He bared his breast. Strike, Peter! Strike true! Twice did Peter raise the arrow, and twice did his hand fall. I I cannot strike! There is something stays my hand! It was Wendy. She had raised her hand and placed it on Peter's. Poor Toodles. (gasps) She lives! And to show their respect for the recovered lady, the lost boys and Peter built Wendy a cottage. With Toodles' shoe as a door knocker and John's hat for the chimney. And the great surprise on that mythic island was the new adventure that Peter and the Lost Boys discovered, playing house with Wendy. She told them stories and fed them imaginary tea and tucked them into their great bed. Hook or me this time? We have said little of Captain Hook at this point, and we mean no disrespect to the pirate that even the sea cook feared. Hook ruled his crew with that awful claw, treated them as dogs, but also was an artful raconteur in his own right, as well as exceedingly polished and handsome, sinister when polite, a man of indomitable courage. The only question that troubled him was one of form learned long ago at boarding school. Good form. However much I may have degenerated, I know that this is all that really matters. Peter was such a small boy that one tends to wonder at the man's hatred of him. True, he had flung Hook's arm to the crocodile, but even this hardly accounts for a vindictiveness so relentless and malignant. The truth is that there was something about Peter which goaded the pirate captain to frenzy. It was not his courage. It was not his engaging appearance. It was the suspicion that Peter had good form and that Hook did not. Is it not bad form to think about good form? (laughs) The story makes its way to a point where Peter must rescue Wendy, John, and Michael along with the Lost Boys from Hook's pirate ship. This makes Peter Pan terribly happy. Hook or me this time! On the ship, the wretched prisoners were dragged from the hold, all except Wendy, and ranged in line in front of Hook. For a time, he seemed unconscious of their presence. He lolled at their ease, humming, not unmelodiously, snatches of a rude song. 
Ever and anon, the light from his cigar gave a touch of color to his face. Now then, bullies, six of you walk the plank tonight. But I have room for two cabin boys. Which of you is it to be? You, boy, you look as if you had a little pluck in you. Didst never want to be a pirate, me hearty? Not John. I once thought of calling myself Red-Handed Jack. And a good name, too. (laughs) We'll call you that here, bully, if you join. What do you think, Michael? What would you call me if I join? Blackbeard Joe. What do you think, John? Shall we still be respectful subjects of the king? You would have to swear down with the king. Then I refuse. And I refuse. That seals your doom. Get the plank ready. Little mother, do you have nothing to say to your children before they walk the plank? I feel that I have a message to you from your real mothers, and it is this. We hope our sons will die like English gentlemen. (laughs) Tie her up! The crocodile's about to board the ship. All eyes turned to Hook, whose infamous claw now hung useless by his side. But the gigantic brain of Hook was still working, and under its guidance, he crawled on his knees along the deck as far from the sound as he could go. The pirates respectfully cleared a passage for him, and it was only when he brought up against the bulwarks that he spoke. Hide me! The pirates gathered round him in his fear and shame, all eyes averted from the thing that was coming aboard. They had no thought of fighting it. It was fate. So it was that no pirate saw Pan leap to the deck, signaling to the Lost Boys to remain quiet so that he might hide in the quartermaster's cabin. When the pirates thought the crocodile gone, they allowed their captain to pick himself up and brush himself off to find some dignity after such a shameful display of bad form. (laughs) Then here's to Johnny Plank! (laughs) Yet... Now Hook despised them all, and the need to torture the Lost Boys overcame his more efficient nature. Do you want a touch of the cat before you walk the plank? (laughs) Fetch the cat, Jukes. It's in the cabin. Peter's in the cabin. Jukes strode blithely into the cabin. The boys followed him with their eyes when... (laughs) What was that? Another pirate hesitated, but then resolutely swung into the cabin. He tottered out, haggard. What's the matter with Bill Jukes? He stabbed. (laughs) The cabin's as black as a pit, but there is something terrible in there. The thing what you heard crowing. Go back and fetch me out that doodle-doo. No, no. Tell that to my claw. The pirate went, first flinging up his arms despairingly. All listened, now, and again came. As is the rule, this repeats itself three times. Until no pirate will enter the cabin, no pirate will obey a direct order. In desperation, Hook makes another decision. Open the cabin door and drive them boys in. Let them fight the doodle-doo for their lives. If they kill him, we're so much the better. If he kills them, we're none the worse. For the last time, his dogs admired Hook, and devotedly they did his bidding. The boys, pretending to struggle, were pushed into the cabin, and the door was closed on them. Now, listen. And then the boys rushed the deck, led by... Peter Pan the Avenger! (laughs) Had the pirates kept together, it is certain they would have won. But the onslaught came when they were all unstrung, and they ran hither and thither, striking wildly. There was little sound to be heard but the clang of weapons, an occasional screech or splash as a pirate threw themselves into the sea. All were gone when a group of savage boys surrounded Hook. Again and again they closed upon him, and again and again he hewed a clear space. 
He had lifted up one boy with his hook and was using him as a buckler when another sprang into the fray. Put up your swords, boys. This man is mine. So, Pan, this is your doing. Hi, <laughs> Hook. It is my doing. Proud and insolent youth, prepare to meet thy doom. Dark and sinister man, Abathy! Pan, who and what art thou? I'm youth! I'm joy! This, of course, was nonsense. <laughs> but it confirmed to Hook that Pan had good form and that he did not. Seeing Peter slowly advancing upon him through the air with dagger poised, Hook sprang upon the bulwarks to cast himself into the sea. And that is where the two last met. As Hook stood in the bulwark, looking over his shoulder at Peter gliding through the air, Hook invited Pan with a gesture to use his foot. It made Peter kick instead of stab. At last, Hook had got the boon for which he craved. Bad form. And with that, Hook went content to the crocodile. The Lost Boys took over the pirate ship and flew it back to London, where Peter had the brief idea of tricking Wendy into thinking that her parents had forgotten her. But he gave it up with great disgust when he saw Mrs. Darling weeping in the nursery. She wants me to unbar the window. But I won't. Not I. She's awfully fond of Wendy. I'm fond of her too. We can't both have her, lady. Oh, all right. Come on, Tink. We don't want any silly mothers. And away he flew. Thus Wendy and John and Michael found the window open for them after all, which, of course, was more than they deserved. The faithful-hearted love of a mother is more than most of us deserve, for like most children, we are gay and innocent and heartless. Peter Pan, recorded live in the Appleseed studio in front of our super studio audience. We hope you loved listening because we had a lot of fun producing that piece of reader's theater for you. We hope you have people in your life who can help you recognize what's shining within you, can help you name the special talent, the brilliance that makes you, you. And we hope you can look around and help others see what's special about them. We all need to help and be helped along our way. It's been a pleasure to be part of this hour with you on The Appleseed where great stories can change your family's world. We're pleased and proud to be among the many shows in the BYU Radio family of programs. And you can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or by Googling the Appleseed podcast. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. <laughs>